This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Zoran Obanski, who's research fellow at the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C., and he'll be talking about his new book, Beyond the Steppe Frontier, A History of the Sino-Russian Border, which was published this year, 2020, by Princeton University Press. Discussions of China and Russia as weighty topics in their own right often eschew the fact that the two share one of the world's longest land borders. Yet for those in the know, I think it's fair to say that attention to this border can be pretty helpful in understanding both places and their relationship, and not only when the border itself pops up in the news, as it did a few months ago during the coronavirus crisis. Zoran Obanski's meticulously researched and compendiously assembled Beyond the Steppe Frontier offers us many reasons for seeing this border as a revealing lens both into each of the two huge states which it separates and into borders more generally. Focusing on the region of steppe and river basins where today Russia and China also meet the eastern end of Mongolia, Obanski narrates the little-known history of how Moscow and Beijing have come to control or not control this frontier area over the past three centuries. More interestingly, however, the book also explores in some depth the past and present experiences of local people living in this area, including indigenous pastoralists, migrant farmsteaders, cross-border railway workers, revolutionaries, and many others, which enrich our sense of the shifting meanings of the border and each state over time. Both central authorities and local people had a part to play, Urbanski suggests, in how the boundary took shape. Although conversely, Readers also get a strong sense of just how everyday life near a geopolitical fault line can be buffeted and reshaped by the top-down actions of state entities. So, however one conceives of the relationship between the local and the national, this book leaves us in little doubt of the importance of understanding these two places and their relations at all levels of elevation. But we're lucky to have the author here to tell us more about all of this, so I'll say, Zoran Urbanski, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for appearing to talk about uh, maybe uh, a subject which appears among all interview subjects as the most uh, close to my heart. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this chat. Um, but before we have this chat, uh, perhaps I'll ask you how you came to be interested in uh, China, Russia and their interconnections, uh, geographical and and in other spheres. Oh, well, I have I will have to go back 20 years uh, of my life because uh, after finishing high school um, back then in Germany, you still had to do your, you still had to do your military service, and instead of uh, serving in the military, I did social work in Russia, more precisely in Moscow at that time, um, and I worked with elderly people, uh, some of whom were born in Harbin and had been deported back to the Soviet Union in the 1930s, and. Basically, I mean, at the time I became interested in Russia and was living in Russia, I also became interested in, um, in, in, in their fate and in, in China. 
And then um, after a couple of years, I decided to study a year uh, in Harbin, where they were from or where they have been born, and um, started learning Chinese. And um, But before that, actually, in between, um, I did a train ride um, from Berlin all the way to Beijing, and I crossed the border precisely at the place I was later writing my book about. And um, yeah, this, I mean, this is kind of, you know, it's a coincidence in a way, but um, I think often first books um, are quite autobiographical in a way that, you know, you use the expertise that you gained without having the intention of doing so. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. and that's that's how it came basically, how it came about. Right. So you say, I mean, this is, I guess, your first uh, monograph in English, but you've also published uh, in, extensively in German, and and I know also uh, edited um, some quite uh, some quite cool projects too. So, um, is this your sort of broadly your dissertation book? Like, is that the, the origins of it? Yes, uh, it's it's uh, it's my dissertation which I wrote in a, in Germany, um, and but from the very beginning I wrote it in English because uh, for a German market it's quite specific. Uh, like Russian studies or Russian history, East European history, tend to be quite Eurocentric in a way still in Germany. And, you know, <laughs> my topic would be quite exotic. And also, although there's many, many, um, uh, there's actually quite uh, established field of Russian history in Germany, uh, it's compared to the international Anglo-Saxon world it's very small um and i thought it's it's probably a good idea to write in english although it was of course difficult uh, for being not an, an, a non-native speaker and for writing it in a country where english is not a you know a language um, but it's possible and you you can submit your dis uh, dissertations in english latin and german in, in german university and i decided not to write it in latin but in english I think that's a uh, uh, yeah a choice for which uh, many readers will be very grateful. Uh, I, I I'm sure uh, erudite as everybody who listens to this podcast is, Latin might be a bit uh, a bit of a struggle. Um, but uh, no, that's great to know. I mean, I should say that the book doesn't read particularly like something that has uh, emerged from a dissertation, which is why I ask. And uh, it's uh, really beautifully written and and um, has a fantastic kind of structure taking us across the border and um, through different eras uh, in a very deft and uh, an elegant way uh, which i think we'll we'll get into in discussing the book itself um so once we're kind of in the introduction of the book um you give us a bit of an outline of what the border looks like and uh, how it kind of came to be and so on um so perhaps you could do that for us uh, now could you tell us something about this kind of huge region of the china russia border in general and why it is that this point you crossed uh, all those years ago was the the particular focal point you chose to study it as a whole yeah i mean like the as you said uh, in your introduction uh, the sino-russian border was once the longest world uh, longest land border in the world it was about two, twelve thousand kilometers long if you include everything including uh the mongolian russian border uh since mongolia used to be a part of the chinese empire and uh the nowadays uh, border between Xinjiang and China and um, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and um, Tajikistan. Uh, so it, it, now it's much shorter, a bit over 4,000 kilometers long, but it's still quite significant. But why did I choose this particular section at the eastern 
triangle of Mongolia, China, and Russia. It's for the reason that um, it's the long, the oldest section of the border that still exists because, you know, uh, in many parts, uh, the border shifted back and forth. Uh, but this is still the um, uh, the section that was first demarcated by both countries in the, in the late 17th century and is more or less the same, uh, which is still in place, which doesn't mean that the border, uh, although it existed on the maps, uh, was always enforced. It, this happened actually quite late, uh, beginning in the early 20th century. So I was fascinated by how can it be that border exists so long and nobody cares and then all of a sudden it becomes one of the you know strictest borders in in the world um in the in in the latter half or actually starting in the 1930s and then again in the 1960s uh comparable to the inner german border during during the cold war or the uh inner korean border nowadays um so um, Mm -hmm. so this was of like a initial fascination by um, um, why I chose this particular section, but in general, why I'm interested in the Sino-Russian border is also because I mean, it's not just the longest, or it, it's not it, it did not just used to be the longest land border in the world, but also it's 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 um, a border between two land empires, which is quite unusual. Often you have frontiers, like in the American case, that you meet like people or peoples that don't have like states in a way or, or like you know you colonize these areas but this is actually a point where two land-based empires met you have an asian civilization you have a, a european civilization and then as you mentioned earlier is uh, you have different peoples like sedentaries and pastoral people who are there and you know make this border in a way so it's a very um it's a very um open field uh, that becomes defined by uh, entities whose like metropoles are thousands of kilometers away, but still, mm. when you are th- there now nowadays, it feels so different. And that that where my fascination stemmed from when I visited this border for the first time by crossing it by by train uh, almost twenty years ago. Um, it's 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 such an odd place because there's a fence in the middle of the step, and on one side. People are Russian, uh, eat potatoes, uh, watch Russian news, dress in Russian clothes, and on the on, on the other side, it's Han Chinese people um, eating rice. I mean, I'm obviously uh, <laughs> obviously Russians also do eat <laughs> yeah. rice, but I, I'm, 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 I'm just want to make yeah, a point yeah. here by saying it's so different culturally, and it's there's not, no natural barrier in a way, you know, that defines this or that kind of explains this difference, um, like an ocean mm. or a mountain range, let's say the Himalaya, and you have like China and India in between, like, uh, you know, as different mm-hmm. civilizations. Um, so that was my initial fascination. And, you know, when I crossed this border, I just started uh, my undergrad. And I said, okay, whenever, if I will ever write a book, this will be the topic I will, <laughs> I want to write about. So it's quite, it's quite a long ride from, from, from this initial thought until, you know, I finished this project. Yeah, yeah. Well, here we are, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's come come to fruition. Um, but uh, as you say, it's somewhere that today is very strikingly uh, different on each side, and uh, as you also mentioned, somewhere that uh, has become uh, over various uh, during various periods very strictly enforced and yeah, very rigidly kind of demarcated and, and defended, uh, despite being so you know uh, such an enormous area and over quite uh, open land. Um, now, in the introduction, you kind of uh, 
su- suggest that the overall trajectory of sort of development of this border is from somewhere that was quite an open inter-imperial frontier, one of these kind of looser, I guess, areas that, you, that you've also just alluded to, and that it kind of becomes more rigid over time. Um, could you say more about that sort of process, you know, in the long durée, like where where did it start? What was the sort of first contact? And, and is it the case that basically it's become stricter and stricter uh, as the as time has gone on? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, obviously, it's a long way or it's a long develop and it's a long and slow development. Um, I mean, as I said, uh, the first treaty that was signed between Russia and China was a treaty and actually between China and a European civilization or a European country was the Treaty of Nanchinsk um, in 1689 that defined this border or that demarcated this border. And then there was another treaty about 40 years later, the Treaty of Kyachta, that kind of um, uh, demarcated this border more more precisely. But uh, nothing much happened uh, in this particular region where where I'm writing about. The only thing that happened is that Russians uh, stationed or, or uh, set up uh, Cossack uh, border posts there, um, and the Chinese did the same with their uh, banner troops. Uh, but the border, although technically it was closed and you know people couldn't cross, it was never really enforced. Uh, trade was regulated to some degree, um, but things did not change uh, much until the latter half of the 19th century. I mean, um, in terms of numbers and uh, people sent to this border, actually, Russia did a better job in, 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 until the late 19th century by populating this area with ethnic Russians or, you know, European uh, people from, from their empire, like ethnic, by ethnic Russians. I mean, it could also be people from present-day Ukraine, uh, but... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they they would uh, they had their their Cossacks uh, Cossack uh, settlements uh, along this border and uh, also deeper inside this country, but next to um, Buryats and other nomadic uh, Mongol Mongol people live, living living uh, along this border. Whereas the Chinese uh, kind of um, didn't do much, and this uh, un- until the early twentieth century, um, they had their border troops uh, there, but. Those were mostly indigenous people. Uh, that is um, different, different uh, kind of in, uh, Mongol tribes um, who were patrolling this border. And only in the early 20th century would they send uh, ethnic Han Chinese to to staff this these border posts. So um, by the yeah. early 20th century, uh, it still pretty much looked the same as it did in the late 17th century, perhaps with a bit more, a bit higher population. But what really was the starting point, I would say, for a new border regime was really the construction of the railroad, which occurred around the year of 1900. This was the initial or the original route of the Trans-Siberian or Great Siberian Railroad from Moscow to Vladivostok. It ran through Manchuria mm-hmm. and so thereby through Chinese territory. And by constructing this railroad, uh, really Russia started to put a lot of resources into, into the, that area, was willing to spend money, was willing to staff uh, the border with uh, sufficient personnel. Uh, and actually, by that time, also the customs border was shifted towards the actual territorial state border. Before that, it was uh, going running along Lake Baikal. Um, so everything east of Lake Baikal was still um, a Porto Franco um, 
or like a free port kind of uh, setting where when even products that had been produced in the, in the, those eastern territories of Russia would have been taxed and um, and sent further west to Russia. So it was like an ex-territorial uh, area in a fiscal sense, so to speak. And this all changed um, around the year of 1900. And um, when also this region gained more political significance and you know, in, in the imperial rivalry between Russia and Japan over Korea, over Manchuria. China was quite weak at that time. So at that time, really, uh, Russia, uh, and by that time, I'm still talking about the Tsarist regime in St. Petersburg, uh, was heavily investing in that area. And actually, the city we see on the Chinese side today is a Russian originally Russian founding, it's called Manchuria, like Manchuria in, 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 uh, in Russian and Manjoli at present day um, in Chinese. But it was uh, the first mm. um, railway or the ra- railway terminus uh, of this Chinese, Chinese Eastern Railroad, which was part of this Trans-Siberian Railroad. And um, until mm. 1970, 1920, it was a Russian colonial railroad town on Chinese territory, so to speak. Right, right. And so I guess from that point onwards, the railway is there. And I guess with that comes a lot of, uh, you know, state technology and technologies of other kinds uh, that you that you document. And, and I guess the railway, yeah, does become quite an important uh, character, if you like, in the, uh, in the course of the book, uh, in the latter part when you're describing, I think, yeah, what is a, a process of increasing tightening um, that we'll get onto, I think, when we discuss the actual chapters themselves. Um, but before, uh, just before we dump, j- jump into those uh, chapters, I just thought I'd ask as well about the process of putting together the book and, and the kind of sources and uh, archival work you did. I mean, you've also done kind of field work in the region, I know. And uh, could you say something about, I guess, what, you know, as you've already uh, alluded to, was quite a long process of gathering materials, familiarizing yourself with this area, going to many different countries and, and, you know, finding kind of relevant sources in those places. Uh, what, what, what was this process and uh, how did you go about collecting material? Yeah. I mean, like uh, it's, it, it had, been, it, I mean, it, it was a quite long process, as you said, but I was lucky to start actually in a provincial archive um, in Chita, which is the capital of the Trans, Transbaikal province. Um, so all like relevant materials are from the Russian side that were of regional significance are gathered there. And I had no idea how to do archival work in Russia or in any other country because I was never trained in that sense by doing my, during my studies. But, you know, Russian, organ, uh, Russian archives are well organized. Um, there's uh, like this system is everywhere the same. So I had this, uh, you call it kartotyeka in Russian, which is like a card, uh, card like a box of, uh, full of um, cards. Um, with each of the collections mm. and uh, you could see like a, a state in in a, a miniature so to speak so you, you could uh, flip through through those cards okay this is customs this is like police this is uh, um, like um, uh, like um, hygiene and you know you could you could just start and and um, at, um, and looking at, at, at this at this how the state worked uh, and by, by state I mean and the Russian and the Soviet state and um, uh, I mean, as we all know, uh, research in Russia tends to get more and more difficult these days. Um, but still, 
this was in 2008 or 2009, um, archives were incredibly open and I actually could just get as many files as I wanted. Um, I didn't have to wait like for three days to get two files and one being rejected for suspicious reasons. Um, so it was actually a quite easy start and I gathered a lot of materials there and I got an understanding of what this border you know, is, is about and what, what to look for in other archives. Because then after this initial stay for a couple of months in Chita, I went to other places um, along the Russo-Chinese border, um, like places like cities like Khabarovsk or Vladivostok. And of, of course, also to the central archives in, 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 in St. Petersburg and Moscow. And obviously, I wanted to do the same in, on the Chinese side, but this proved to be much more difficult since our archives mm. are much more uh, like access to archives for at least not only for foreigners, but even more so for foreigners, is much more restricted. And I got access to some archives, uh, but even there, um, it's uh, I was allowed to find less, and there was also less because I mean, there's different reasons, but one of the reasons is that many of the archives right on the border had been evacuated uh, during the Sino-Soviet split of the 1960s and 70s uh, because the Chinese, Chinese mm. state was fearing uh, an invasion by the Soviet Union. So they basically wanted to save those materials. And then also many materials got lost on the way. Um, so even if there's, I mean, even the f- materials I found were much thinner, so to speak, than, 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 than the complete, almost complete, never being... Uh, affected by a war, which is surprising in Russia as well, uh, materials on, on the Russian side. And another, uh, I mean, another reason why materials on the Chinese side are less, you know, less, um, how to say, I mean, le- less uh, le- less accessible or more incomplete is the state simply was uh, less bureaucratized at the time. I mean, if you talk about the early 20th century, mm. for instance, but I could mitigate like this lack of Chinese primary sources, at least, and by primary sources, uh, of course, I used Chinese newspapers and travel logs and stuff like that. But by primary sources, I mean now like archival documents from state archives. Um, they also ended up to some degree in foreign archives, including Russian archives and also uh, U.S. archives. For instance, um, the United States had a consulate in in Harbin um, in the early 20th century, and uh, they had actually quite able um, consuls over there and they sent excellent reports back to Washington DC and also they gathered like Chinese correspondence where they got copies from so you buy this you could kind of still get a Chinese state perspective in without having uh, the access you would like to have uh, from in Chinese archives so to speak and of course there's other sources mm-hmm. um, as I said like newspapers travelogues uh academic, you know, publications, ethnographies uh, from, from the early 20th centuries, um, and also oral history, which was quite an important um, inroad also, especially at the beginning, where people would just, you know, talk about things uh, we had no idea what they're talking about, like Krasnaya uh, Derevnia, what is a Krasnaya, like, it's Red Village in, 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 in English. It was basically... Um, train car park when the Soviet city was set up. They didn't have houses, so they put just train carts there. Um, so, I mean, mm. once you get these, you know, keywords, you could look for these again in the archives and then get a better sense of how this settlement actually evolved, for instance. So uh, oral history, I mean, I'm generally quite skeptic about it, but 
um, it's a good way for uh, starting research and getting ideas um, uh, of for what to look for as well. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I think uh, it really comes out throughout the book, this act, sort of act of uh, triangulation and uh, continuous cross-referencing that, that you refer to there, you know, looking for, uh, you know, if there are gaps in um, materials that you might otherwise desire in China, you know, you're filling uh, in the holes with uh, newspaper reports and with oral histories. And um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderfully rich and multi-layered text, uh, I think, uh, for that reason, you know, and, and, and that goes right to the point of contemplating the actual work that's gone into it and the, you know quite amazing list of sources that's uh, at the back of the book too um but we'll uh, move on i think now to talk about uh, some of the kind of chapters in the body of the book itself you've given us a bit of a picture already of uh kind of first contact between uh, the two powers and the role of indigenous peoples uh, various mongolian and uh, also tungusic groups who live in this kind of uh, steppe region um and uh I guess you brought us up quite well to the point where, you know, the railway uh, has been laid um, and, and how that sort of starts, uh, I guess, bringing about a kind of uh, transformation to the space and, and uh, of course, bringing more people in and, and causing uh, people to move around in new ways. So um, could you kind of give us a picture of this sort of uh, f- first decades of the 20th century? This is uh, basically, I guess, chapters two and three of the of the book, uh, how uh, the sort of late czarist construction of the railway and then the early revolutionary period um, unfolded uh, in this uh, borderland locale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is like a very interesting period uh, because you have basically two different kinds of borders parallel existing next to each other. You have this new city of uh, or railroad town of Manjuli where the state was kind of able to set up a state border in a modern modern sense with quarantine stations with customs control, you know, staffed by people who are able to read and write. And next to it, just like a couple of miles away, you still have this very open set or this very open landscape, more frontier-like with Cossack posts, with people who have been living there for uh, decades, if not centuries, and who are actually also able to speak the uh, both languages, like many Many Chinese or Mongols who lived there were able to speak Russian. They were married to Russians. Uh, they would cross the border frequently to trade, to uh, to to feed their feed their feed their cattle, or to bring their cattle on the other side of the river. So this is like this is like happening at the same time. And you know, if you would just visit one part, you will get a very wrong impression about how this border actually worked, uh, rather than like on the other side or on the much larger section like the sections between cities and between uh, small pockets of you know state control and um, what really changed was I think uh, during that time was that many people came in from all kinds of places from the Russian Empire and from the Chinese Empire um, due to the fact that there was actually money to make um, uh, there was a huge increase in smuggling um from both sides um uh gold mining played a key role gold mining on on both sides of the border but uh, in the early 20th century increasingly on the russian side you had chinese gold miners who were work- working in those mines it was illegal to smuggle out this or to to take out this gold uh, to, to to china and um at the same time you had you had uh, increasing russian population and i know this sounds very 
um, stereotypical, but um, alcohol consumption was a big problem back then. The state tried to control um, the alcohol production, but there's a, there was a huge contraband um, trade of alcohol from China to Russia and from gold to from from Russia to China, and of course there's other commodities like opium and uh, tea, tobacco, what uh, and many other things. But these were, were really the two main commodities for illegal contraband trade, and this did not happen to that degree until the early 20th century, simply because of the fact there were less people, it was less developed and less exploited, um, and um, on on the one hand, this was interesting for me to see uh, simply as an economic history, but on the other hand, it was very a very uh, interesting uh, kind of topic because sources uh, like customs uh, documents are very rich in, in 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 Russian archives, and you actually can get an idea about how people's life looked like at that time because often you find. Um, apprehended smugglers in, in, in these reports um, that did not write any diaries or left any written sources and nobody usually cared about them. There was There's no newspaper reports about like ordinary Cossacks smuggling um, uh, alcohol and gold across the border. But by interrogating them, you get actually an idea uh, what ne- networks existed, what languages they spoke, whom their daughters mm. and sons were married to, uh, were the Chinese baptized or not? And these, you know, you you get you get this kind of information from these documents. So, um, and you get a feeling that this was actually a very um, uh, a very uh, polyglot or, you know, uh, yeah, multicultural atmosphere, very open, where many people spoke different languages, kind of used their ethnicity, their religion strategically. You know, they could. On one day, they could be Chinese. On the other day, they could be Russians. And, you know, like it was, everything was in flux. And also people, uh, unless they were working for the state, state cared less about it. Like who you are, you know, um, where you come from and, and what, 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 what do you do there? So this, this mm-hmm. was still a very open, open situation. Um, although, of course, both states, actually, the Chinese also started to erect custom, custom sports, uh, customs customs ports uh, sorry it's done uh, chinese also st- uh, started erecting customs control in 1908 uh, right after the russo japanese war along this border so it was not the just the russian state but also the chinese who tried to you know get a sense of who is there what goes across the border and how can we control this movement right this episode is brought to you by shopify Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, and I mean, so it's already a very kind of uh, heterogeneous and uh, diverse and mixed kind of a landscape, if you like, and populations multilingual and multicultural. So, I guess uh, in a way that raises some interesting questions when you consider that the first decades of the twentieth century were the time when uh, both Russian and Chinese imperia were kind of uh, nearing collapse, and indeed then did 
collapse in their own ways in 1911 following the Wuchang uprising and at the end of the Qing and then 1917 and the uh, October Revolution and the end of the Tsarist Empire. So how did the kind of reverberations of these events, which, uh, as you've already mentioned, occurred very, very far away, closer to the metropoles or I guess uh, indeed in Wuhan in the case of Wuchang, um, how did they kind of make themselves felt at, at this already quite you know diffuse and distributed uh, location? Uh, were there local responses to the new revolutionary movements going on? Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, especially if you look at the indigenous population, um, the, Mon- the Mongol population there. Um, uh, as we all know, um, Outer Mongolia um, gained independence in 1921 um, and became like a Soviet satellite in 1924. And actually, the first time it gained in- independence was right during the time of the Wuchang uprising. And uh, Russia, of course, by then still Tsarist Russia or the Russian Empire also had vital interest in, you know, expanding its informal and also formal influence uh, in in those regions. And um, it tried not only to gain control over outer Mongolia or influence in outer Mongolia, but also inner Mongolia, which uh, this region uh, on the Chinese side of the border is present day uh, part of. and uh, they kind of supported uh, some of the those uh, uh, independent uh, movements uh, there um, in the first place. But when they realized that this is unsuccessful or the the, the cost, like the cost calculation, uh, the cost and benefits um, uh, won't work in their favor, um, they kind of uh, you know uh, stopped oh. there, stopped supporting this independence movement. But um, it's not all, all. It's not always like the uh, like the Russians and the Chinese from the metropole against the indigenous people. But you know, people would take sides, and like states would take take, um, take sides in those uh, local conflicts. And you know, you could also argue that actually, this is part of the tragedy uh, tragedy um, of um, indigenous people. Living on those frontier areas, that they kind of got um, mm. under the wheels of of those empires um, by their power games or global uh, geopolitical power 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 games, and this is what happened, like in the nineteen tens, and then starting in the nineteen twenties. I mean, obviously, October Revolution and the Russian Civil War played a big role. Like the whole state uh, control collapsed, um, customs did not exist anymore. Uh, you know, and uh, many of the most famous um, uh, white, so white Russian kind of uh, revolu- like um, participants of the civil war, like uh, Baron Ungen Sternberg and uh, Grigory Semyonov, um, lived and passed through those settlements and created uh, disruptions. And um, um, but even after the Soviets. Uh, Took control of this region um, in in the early 1920s. It took it took really uh, a couple of years to fully establish um, a foothold there and to establish a new bureaucracy mm. that is, that is working actually for Moscow. Loyalties still were in flux. Um, also, economic policies in the 1920s. You had a new economic policy in the Soviet Union, which was like due to its own weakness at that time, um, kept borders open to some degree. Uh, Chinese were still living on the on the Soviet side of the border. 
many Russians continue to live on the Chinese side of the border. So it was still very much the old situation if you look at the people. Um, but only, let's say, by the late 1920s, um, when China actually tried to uh, gain full control over the former Russian uh, colonial kind of um, concessions or imperial concessions, namely the railroad, um, there was a conflict between um, the then warlord government um, uh, in Manchuria and the Soviet Soviet Union in 1929, which uh, the Soviet uh, Soviets won, which was really the really really the first large scale military conflict on this particular section of the border mm-hmm. that created all kinds of, of disruptions um, and created like images of the other side is is your enemy and you know. And also, at the same time, the, 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 the Soviet Union used this conflict with the Chinese to suppress Russian emigres um, that had moved across the border um, to kind of uh, punitive campaigns to, to you know, kill those people uh, who, who would continue to live right across the border. I mean, the, the story of the Cossacks is very interesting in that regard, and also many nomadic people. Um, due to the collectivization in the Soviet Union, they would try to emigrate uh, to outer Mongolia, but most, more so to the Chinese side. And many of those Cossacks who had, they actually, the, the emigration was li- really like a, a day ride away. So they would just, you know, pack their horses and cross, cross the river with their cattle and set up their new houses just in plain sight of the Soviet, of the Soviet Union, so to speak. And um, they were used to live or settle in those regions because they used the Chinese bank um, for haymaking before and for mm, you know right. for grocery shopping actually also. So it, it's it's not it's not like this when you think about the Russian immigration and it was like a quite a significant immigration. You think about intellectual the intellectual the state elite, um, but at this particular border it was really like the ordinary people and. Um, who would continue and do continue to some degree still live on, 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 on the Chinese side of the border. And you have also the Chinese who lived on this, on the Russian side who were expelled who, and in the 1930s and, um, you know, almost completely uh, disappeared from Soviet censuses uh, in the mid 1930s, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the kind of fate of uh, Russian Cossacks and, and other Russian settlers who crossed the river from the um, Russian side to the Chinese side is, I don't know, it's a, it's a window into something that I think a lot of people with an interest in, in many aspects of, of China in particular um, are uh, quite fascinated by. And, and it, it is the case that the uh, that, that, that this remaining population of um, what are today called Olosudzu, right. the ethnic Russian population of China, still live up there. And, and I know you did some research in that region uh, as part of this book project too. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, the, the kind of fate of, of these people uh, who have been the kind of quintessential uh, border crossers, the kind of trans-frontier uh, group uh, is very indicative. And so as we move uh, from uh, Chapter 4, where you document some of the processes you just said uh, about the kind of Soviet um, re-establishment of control over over the railway and uh, that had its own consequences for for trade and for some of the contraband activity that you've already described uh, into the, the period when Japan was occupying 
northeast China in the 1930s and then facing the Soviet Union over the border. I think the the kind of what the Russians were up to on the Chinese side of the border, or as was then the imperial Japanese side of the border, is again very uh, instructive. So what happened to these Russians living on the Chinese side or the Manchurian side of the Argun uh, when the Japanese were occupying the uh, northeast of China? Yeah, I mean, uh, many actually were quite happy that many of those Russian Cossacks were quite happy that the uh, Japanese uh, invaded and occupied Manchuria because uh, they also had a hard time with the Chinese authorities. They would tax them heavily. They would forbid like uh, religious services in, in their communities. You know, like China was not a safe haven for them, so to speak. And they thought uh, things would improve for the Japanese. And to some degree, they actually did because what the Japanese uh, did in Manchuria or in Manchukuo, as it was called back then, um, was that they used ethnic minorities to pl- against the Han Chinese, who were already the ethnic majority in Manchukuo at that time. So they would kind of give those ethnic min- minorities, and by ethnic minorities, I mean the Koreans, the Mongols, uh, the Manchus to some degree, and, and those Russians, um, some privileges, uh, at least in, initially, and also, if, at least in the Russian case, they would use those Russians in their increasing war effort with the Soviet Union. I mean, there was a war scare from both sides of, of the soviet Manchukuo border. Um, the Soviet Union was fearing an attack by Manchukuo and uh, vice versa. And um, there were some border conflicts, not in the that particular region I'm talking about, but more uh, prominently uh, in the eastern section in 1938 and then on the Manchukuo-Mongol border in 1939, the uh, Nomonhan Khafingol border conflict uh, right before World War II uh, broke out in, in Europe. Um, so what the Chinese, uh, the Japanese did with, uh, with those uh, Russian Cossacks is was they would kind of create military units, but also intelligence units and would send those people over to the Russian side. Many people never returned, not because they fled, but because they were just killed or, you know, um, disappeared in the Soviet Union. But why did the Japanese do this? Uh, um, Is because by then, and by then I mean the mid-late 1930s, um, this border had become so heavily militarized that this intelligence intelligence was, was crucial for, you know, state security they would kind of figure out what military tech, uh, technical equipment, what units, what strengths of troop was positioned there on, 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 the, on the Soviet side. And the Soviets, of course, would do the same. There would be planes uh, kind of flying over the border to kind of gather this intelligence as well. Mm. And um, what I think for that period of time is the most crucial part is that both states and the Manchukuo regime in many ways copied the Soviet model, create inter- created internal borders. So the Soviets started to set up um, border zones. So border zones where only people who lived there could uh, move uh, to, and also, of course, military personnel, state security. Everybody else needed to have a permit, and it was hard to obtain such permits. Uh, people on trains uh, could st- still travel through, but had to stay on 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 on, on the railroad. And actually, at some point in time, those uh, railroad um, car cars would 
have blind like blind windows, so you could actually not see what's happening beyond uh, outside of, of the of the train. So this was like a really tense atmosphere, and uh, we all know that it never uh, came to a major conflict. Uh, there was never like a major war between Japan and the Soviet Union until August 1945, but um, the whole atmosphere from the mid-1930s until 1945 was extremely tense. Uh, both sides were really fearing a uh, war, and uh, the Russians in particular, the Soviet Union, were, was fearing a two-front war with two theaters, one in, in Asia and one, uh, one in Europe. So, uh, yeah, it was very, very intense. And uh, one more aspect um, that is important in, in, in during that time is since and during to this during this uh, militarization, uh, the states were actually able to control this border efficiently along its entirety, so to speak. So they had enough men to patrol this border, even where it's open and almost un- unpopulated. Mm-hmm. And uh, so crossing it was much more risky and was uh, you really a privilege of very few, such as diplomats or people from third countries who were still able to cross it. And this created a different kind of uh, feeling on the border. So people living on one side would really see the other side as an enemy. New people would be sent to that border, like loyal, like allegedly loyal people from the interior of those countries, especially on the Russian side during that time. People who had never lived there, who would not speak Chinese who uh, would actually no interest also in the other side, mm-hmm. whereas other people had kind of, you know, ties through friendships, through kinship, mm-hmm. economic, you know, relations. This all would disappear. And, uh, you know, people were, who were new to this area, to them it was much easier, you know, to create this border as an, you know, as, a, as an ideological barrier or, you know, to kind of, uh, wash their brains uh, through propaganda. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody would believe, you know, this propaganda who had lived on both sides or had traveled on both sides. But people who are new to this region, actually, for them, it could be quite convincing. Right, right. And I guess you know that separation, the increased population or estranged populations from each other, and the also uh, also the, the much higher level of securitization and reinforcement. I think provide quite important context for uh, the next chapter i guess both literal and metaphorical in this case um chapter six when you're discussing the uh, uh post uh, 1949 period so japan defeated in the war and ultimately the communists victorious in the chinese civil war um and then uh from that point you have uh yes yeah, socialist governments on both sides of the river and and i think uh one might assume that you know from this background of tension and uh, as you say kind of constant hostility and and estrangement uh, this new period of the 1950s might offer more potential for harmonization uh, and you know maybe a return to some of the kind of free and easy mixing that uh, one had before but the picture you paint uh, very clearly here is that it wasn't entirely the case so could you say something about how these two socialist states interacted with one another across the border in the 50s yeah uh, absolutely uh, it's like you have like two or there's, there's three aspects to it. Uh, it was portrayed as a border of friendship, as actually many borders between socialist states. Uh, I'm just thinking here about the German or East German-Polish border 
um, was portrayed. It was portrayed as an open border where people meet, where's friendship between peoples. But in fact, it was uh, any travel and you know exchange across the border was highly regulated. It was uh, possible to regulate it because the border had been established as a you know uh, with enough personnel to control it um, and as i said earlier people also didn't have did have less interest in crossing it um, and were less familiar with the other side so what you had was indeed an increase in you know goods exchange again or commodities exchange but now strictly only across railroad border crossings, not like uh, just 40 years earlier that like a Russian uh, dweller uh, on the Argun in a, in a small Russian Argun village would just uh, take his boat or ride his horse across a border um, and go to a, like a petty tra- Chinese tra- petty trader and get his soap and his bottle of vodka and go back. Mm. But uh, it was really trains... Uh, train cards, goods exchange that was happening across the border exclusively. You had some smuggle, uh, smuggling going on, but this smuggling was again on the railroad uh, by train conductors uh, and soldiers uh, in the early 1950s, Soviet soldiers who were stationed still uh, in Dalian, uh, so in the south uh, of uh, Manchuria. Um, but it was like highly limited. Uh, but and all the people's exchange you had was, again, highly regulated. There, was, there were friendship delegations, uh, some tourists, but obviously only uh, selected, very selected few. But these, again, were portrayed very, uh, very, very strongly in, in the press. So you could actually, if you, could, if you didn't live there, uh, you could get the impression that this is indeed a very open and very friendly border. But people... Uh, Many people never had any interaction with uh, from the, with the people from across the fence, so to speak. Mm, mm. I see. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, I guess, elevation in some respects of the relationship to to the state level, and and maybe a, a reduction in the importance of uh, of the local uh, that you kind of so richly describe mm-hmm. in in earlier chapters. Um, as we move forward uh, into a period where. China and the Soviet Union were not getting on so well. I mean, after the Sino-Soviet splits that you've already mentioned set in from the 60s, uh, I guess this then becomes a potential site for tension. Um, Now, you mentioned, of course, the importance of the railway and the railway traffic continuing to cross over during the friendship period. Was the railway still operational? Were people still moving between the two countries? Because this might seem surprising, given what we know of how uh, deeply kind of inimical the relationship was between uh, China and the Soviet Union during this time. Was there any contact? Was was there still rail traffic across the border? And if so, mm-hmm. what kind of thing was it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's actually a very... So that was a very surprising for, moment for me as well when I did my research. And this is also an argument towards... I mean, you mentioned in the beginning, uh, it's a, I, the book is uh, structured chronologically and you could get the impression that it's a very... T- that I'm portraying a very te- theological moment, uh, like uh, development from a very open border to a very closed border. Um, but the story is not as easy. I mean, um, it was never completely sealed, um, even though it was portray- portrayed as such. 
Uh, and what was open still was precisely this uh, railroad crossing and Manjuli and Zabakars. Um, but again, uh, during the, cl the climax of this uh, conflict in 1969 and 1970, and then again in the late 70s, um, uh, there was, uh, I mean, trains were always running, but people on the trains uh, were not Russian or Soviet and Chinese anymore. It were it, uh, those people were mostly from uh, communist Vietnam and North Korea, uh, people going to the Soviet Union to, to go to university or delegation exchanges, uh, sports events. So it's and a very few uh, uh, tourists from neutral countries such as uh, Finland or, or, or Sweden and Switzerland. So it was mm. it was uh, it was a very weird mix um, uh, and a very uh, Kind of particular image and of obviously and i said this before both states try to um establish this this border also in a, like a in a metaphorical sense and in for using the, it as a, also as an image for or as a tool for their own ideology and um how the russians or the soviets got caught by surprise uh, you can see from uh, the fact that by the early 60s they tried to train uh, railroad uh, people that were able to speak Chinese but they those people were no longer needed and they were trained to meet Chinese uh, passengers uh, on their stopover when the boobies were changed that year two hours time and they want wanted to kind of uh, you know give them lectures about how, how great the Soviet Union is but if you don't have any Chinese passengers anymore you don't need those people and they actually what they needed was people who speak uh, Korean or Vietnamese. Uh, Vietnamese. Um, so, mm. you know, um, this, this, uh, this was in a way a, um, a new development, uh, which kind of the Soviet Union and also the, Chinese, uh, the, the People's Republic of China reacted to with some, you know, it took some years to get adapted to it. But what I think is most important here is really um, that this train service was never really interrupted there were some instances when you know uh, uh, those passenger trains got stopped for a couple of hours and there were rallies on the chinese side and actually the soviet personnel that would bring and meet those trains uh, was kind of attacked not physically but you know uh, they were like kind of uh, locked up in the train station and at, uh, after some hours they could go um but uh, it was still there was still some contact, and also what I'm also saying in this book is that uh, at some uh, uh, even in 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 the, in in the most difficult times, um, there were some very limited delegation exchanges between both countries. Um, let's say the railway, the Communist Party of both railway stations meet for usually was working meetings, but also meetings during uh, holidays like the founding of the People's Republic or October Revolution. And um, these meetings uh, were agreed upon during those tense moments, uh, really in the Central Committee um, uh, in Moscow and, and, and Beijing, mm. because it was a sign to the other side, okay, let's kind of, uh, kind of like, let's ease those tensions. So when it was allowed, you could, uh, it was assigned to the other side, okay, maybe we should, you know, kind of um, decrease the tensions at the border or this is a sign of goodwill. For instance, the, it was always a sign of goodwill when the 
Chinese allowed the Soviets to lay their wreath uh, on the Soviet memorial of for, for the fallen Soviet uh, soldiers during the August mm. 1945 campaign in in, Man, in Manjoli. So you had these right. really very limited contacts um, during that time. And um, what just to add one one more point, what changed on on uh, during that period and actually starting in the 1950s was that actually the Chinese side of the border became Chinese in the sense that now the majority of people living on that border was ethnic Chinese, what it never was before, by uh, state campaigns sending those uh, sending those people to these areas, but also voluntarily uh, during the Great Leap Forward when there was a famine in, in, in many parts of China, uh, people actually moved to these uh, remote areas, basically, uh, because they were like less affected by famine. So nowadays, if you look at population statistics, uh, there's many more Chinese living on the Chinese side than there is living uh, Russians living on, on, on the Russian side. And this, uh, this ethnic fabric and also social fabric of the border changed dramatically during these, uh, during these de- decades. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the processes, I guess, in some ways look quite similar on each side, but maybe are staggered in time. I mean, mm-hmm. the uh, communist governments in China implemented some similar, I guess, uh, agricultural reform and, and also incentivized or you know, <laughs> strongly encouraged migratory policies uh, for populations to move into the area, even if it was several day, decades after uh, the uh, comparable processes in the Soviet Union. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting that as part of, I guess, this not totally linear uh, but broad trajectory narrative, you see this sort of step-by-step uh, kind of shifts on, on either side, not necessarily lined up, but uh, often exhibiting quite interesting parallels. Um, now, moving right up to pretty close to the present day, um, I think another sort of instance of this, yeah, I guess, non-linear trajectory is uh, the, the 90s in particular, the late 80s into the 90s when uh, the Soviet Union was coming to the end of its life and then of course did uh, end and uh, you know during a period when I suppose the uh, collapse at the center or the the kind of problems at the center were maybe offering more opportunities for local control in many areas and of course during the 90s that led to you know Yeltsin saying you know people could take as much autonomy as they could swallow and uh, or sovereignty as they could swallow and so on uh, in the in the regions but uh, what was going on in this area that obviously, as you've said already, has, has was so tightly controlled up to that point. Did the uh, late and ultimately end of the Soviet period um, lead to kind of a loosening of relations and, and more organic contacts? Or, or what, what happened basically uh, as the Sino-Soviet split thawed and the Soviet Union came to an end? Yeah, uh, it was like... Uh... There was a very slow reconciliation between uh, the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, starting in the uh, in the early 1980s, uh, not yet under Gorbachev, but uh, under his predecessors. Um, and um, this again was tightly controlled by Moscow and uh, by Beijing by setting up friendship societies that had been, you know that had existed in the 1950s and until the 1960s, but then, you know, just get um, disrupted. And by sending first delegations uh, across the border again, and um, this was a very 
well kind of kind of uh, managed development from from the from 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 the centers but then it got overrun by developments on right on the border especially once the um, uh, Soviet Union increasingly got into like faced economic difficulties um, uh, starting in the late 1980s when Chinese workers were allowed to cross the border into the Soviet Union to work in Soviet uh, like state farms and collective farms uh, or help with construct with construction work um, and then even more so uh, once the Soviet Union collapsed and with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the border regime collapsed and all of a sudden uh, people could travel freely. Um, and in many ways, it saved uh, the Soviet East or then already the Russian East, uh, by East I mean territories east of Lake Baikal, that is um, Eastern Siberia and the Russian Far East uh, from starvation basically because um, all of a sudden, uh, train service, cargo service, uh, which existed in the Soviet Union, was no longer subsidized, and it was very expensive to uh, ship uh, goods, food um, from European part or from other parts of Siberia to this to these remote regions. And uh, the region or those regions would have uh, certainly faced uh, difficult times. I mean, they were difficult anyways, but uh, much more difficult times in terms of food supply if the Chinese would not have helped out. Um, and there was, like, immediately there was a new black market that started to, you know, that re-emerged in a way similar to the early 20th century, but also different in a sense, you know, that now people on those markets had never, you know, crossed the border before. We're unfamiliar with the neighbor. We're also kind of, you know, afraid of, and like it was more exotic and there was more stereotypes about the other side because you had learned so much more about these people in a negative sense. But on the other hand, there was this incredibly openness uh, and curiosity of people uh, being able to travel again and seeing China. I mean, there's this incredible report uh, in the local newspaper. It's called Zabaikali. It's, it's this local newspaper in Zabaikalsk, a village with, or a city with 10,000 people that came out three three times a week, just four pages long. And like actually Manjoli and the other side of the border had disappeared abruptly in 1969. You had no reports uh, whatsoever about China unless it was very general, like reports from Moscow about Maoism and Maoist, the, the Maoist regime, but not about the immediate neighbor neighboring side like Manjoli and, and the surroundings. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden this journalist... Uh, was allowed to travel again to 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 Zabek, uh, to Manjoli and he had, he had actually never visited and was you you could read and this journalist like was a very simple like it was like a reporter for a local newspaper so he was not this like great National Geographic or New York Times reporter like being very able like with his words to describe what he seen but he could really see this fascination of the other side and how this you know how he was all of a sudden able to travel again. You had veterans meetings, you know, uh, that existed before. Um, and But these initially formal contacts got overnight, you can say, informal and very chaotic. And uh, mm. uh, to, the, uh, to the degree that um, by the end of the Soviet Union, the customs service collapsed and 
trains and cars, cargo cars were piling up on the Soviet side. And because of the economic difficulty and also because of the opportunity uh, of having sitting those train carts full with Chinese goods uh, standing there, people would go on those carts and uh, loot, uh, loot the goods. So at some point, uh, this, the, the Russians had to bring in the military in. There was state of war declared. Actually, a couple of people died. And um, the border was reinforced in a, I mean, never as much as it used to be. But like the, you needed, again, a visa. You could not travel freely anymore. But the border zone, for instance, did not exist any longer. So there was this moment of chaos and compared a bit to civil war, not of, obviously with the same consequences, but it was like, it was a big sign or it was a great sign that this border regime, which exists, had existed for decades on both sides, had all of a sudden collapsed. And yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's a, even just as a microcosm of the entire kind of very last days of the Soviet Union. Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a pretty revealing uh, portrait that you paint. And, and indeed, it's a very vivid one, your descriptions of uh, what you learned of the uh, yeah kind of really quite chaotic scenes going on in uh, Zabaykalsk, uh, right on the border and, and in the surrounding areas. Um, right up to the kind of conclusion of the book, we kind of come full circle, I think, as far as this conversation is concerned, because... Uh, you bring us up closer to the present day, uh, to Manjoli and the, this area in which you've spent plenty of time in recent years. Um, so perhaps as a kind of final question relating to this, these conclusion, uh, conclusive reflections that you make, what uh, would you say your kind of long-term research here and, and the book as a whole tells you about people's relationships to borders and borders in general? How How does sort of this research uh, help shape your, and I guess ultimately, thanks to your having written this book, our understandings of, uh, of borders and people's relationships to them? Uh, yes, it's a great question. Um, well, what I learned from this border is that it always takes uh, people in the metropole and people on the ground to kind of establish a border because um, it's not that a state uh, or a government kind of uh, drafts a policy and it becomes uh, the norm or the, the reality the next day on the border, especially in, in areas that, that are so far away. And like, at least in the 20th century, um, those governments were always striving for clarity um, on those borders, like in a way that they wanted the territorialization of their entire state. So that basically the same rules, the same laws are valid in in, uh, in in all in provinces up to the state border. That people read the te same textbooks, they they read the same news, speak the same language, and so on and so forth. But it takes quite a while, and it takes um, quite a lot of energy to actually uh, fulfill this kind of desire of the metropole and. Um, what I learned is also that military conflicts uh, are really a, catal a catalyst for, for these developments. I mean, you had the Sino-Soviet conflict of 1929, you had the Japanese occupation of Manchuria that really kind of were driving forces uh, behind these developments. Although, you know, the Soviet Union had existed for uh, around 10 years by 1929, it was not really like the border had not been really efficiently. Um, uh, kind of uh, enforced um, 
it took this conflict and then the Japanese occupation, for instance. And but it's always also the people um, making this border. Um, and by people, main, I mean every everybody living there, and from the train conductors uh, to 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 like farmers, um, what they think and what they believe, and whether they support this regime or just they ignore it or um, actively fight against it. I mean, it really it it, it is really them um, to make sure or to undermine the, these uh, these border regimes. But uh, in a bigger picture, so to speak, um, what fascinates me most about this border is that it took up so different forms and shapes uh, within just a 100 years time frame. I mean, um, if you look mm. and compare it to, and this is maybe also interesting for historians uh, and scholars who study imperial or national peripheries, Borders in other parts of the world is that it is precisely it, it it was it was so significant culturally, economically, po- politically, and it was a very long border between two major powers. But also, it took up uh, so many forms, and you could compare it in the early twentieth century to colonial borders in Africa, let's say between uh, German Southwest Africa, today Namibia, and uh, the British Cape Colony, right? Uh, British British. Um, or South Africa present day, where states didn't have the resources to suppress local movements, um, where you know they had the local population that simply didn't care about what passports they were having or whether they had a passport at all, and those uh, imperial metropoles being unable to enforce um, border controls because of the lack of resources. And then just fifty years later, you had like a tightly patrolled border. Uh, that is either a border of friendship like this GDR uh, Polish People's Republic border or even the inner German border where you had like um, total control um, also like similar at least from the East German side uh, similar ideological kind of tools by I mean I went to primary school still in East Germany and when we had our geography lessons we would have maps on the wall where you had like the the whole of Germany on it, but the west was gray. It was just, there was no cities on it. There was no mountains. I mean, no, no no topographical kind of features on on these maps. And this is actually precisely what the Soviets and also the Chinese wanted to create um, during the times of conflict. They simply wanted to uh, kind of uh, delete the information that was around from people who still experienced the old times when borders were open. Um, so that people have no idea of what is across the border, who is living there, how they are doing, uh, you know, and, and, and the like. And I must say they were quite right. successful in it, but it took some time. <laughs> well, I think uh, perhaps that's also an adequate summary of, uh, of, of your own uh, efforts to, uh, to, to put this <laughs> book together, having sworn to yourself so early that uh, that you would. And uh, it's a, a wonderful uh, book and i'm so glad that we've had the chance to talk about it today zaren um before we let you go uh completely and free you from uh, this interview could i just ask you what you're working on now uh, it's our traditional final question what's uh, what projects have followed on from uh, this this uh, excellent work yeah thank you uh, yeah i mean i mean after having spent uh, so much time in the steppe and very arid uh places of the world uh i moved to the pacific onwards to the pacific and i'm looking currently I'm trying to write a book about, um, uh, broadly speaking, 
Chinese migration across the Pacific uh, and the Yellow Peril in the sense that I'm studying uh, Chinese diaspora communities in uh, port cities uh, in the United States, in the Russian Far East and in Singapore, and how they were perceived by local populations, by local governments, um, like the negative stereotypes, how they played out um, in everyday life. In a, in, in a way, it's, it's a continuation of the way I like to see and write history that is seeing the bigger picture in a very global, uh, in a very micro setting. Uh, I'm again looking at mm. individuals um, and and their fates and the the problems they faced, how they kind of tried to fight against a uh, kind of uh, discrimination. Uh, but it, the setting is very different. So I'm looking at three different places uh, around the turn of the 20th century, and I'm also kind of trying to kind of uh, reading the yellow peril discourse that was quite prominent and was also well researched or is already well researched uh, from a different perspective that is from from below and see what consequences these kind of stereotypes had on people's lives in different regions of the world whether where are the similarities where are the differences and how you know stereotypes changed over time and very important again the local or the, the people's perspective, and especially of those uh, subaltern groups that hardly get a voice in historical scholarship, that in that case it's the Chinese who lived in in those cities. Um, yeah, fantastic. Well, that sounds like a yeah a, a, a wonderful follow up to this book, and and I think one that we'll uh, greatly enjoy reading uh, when when it appears. And and I think also yeah, given what's going on in the world at the moment, also extremely timely um but uh, in the meantime zoran thank you again so much for appearing on the show today uh, it was really great speaking to you thank you so much for having me listeners thanks too for listening to new books in east asian studies it's a podcast channel on the new books network and it will be back with you again very soon goodbye <laughs>